So, Will, if you will, please turn to John chapter 10 with me. I'm going to read verses 1 to 21. Now, I'm not going to preach that whole text. Uh, we'd be here a lot longer than uh, the time permits. Um, we are going to look at verses 17 to 21. But I want to read all of uh, from verse 1 down in order to give us some context uh, for the passage today. So, I'm going to read uh, starting in John chapter 10, verse number 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the, she the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The, sh the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, and here's our text today, for this reason, the Father loves me. Because... I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon. And is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let us pray. So good to us, and I pray that this morning um, your word will be exalted and your son. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, maybe you've heard it said before, there are no atheists in foxholes. 
I would like to say this morning that there are no apathetic people to obedience who have been saved by the living God. Sometimes in churches which I have read your doctrinal statement online, sometimes we can lower down obedience just a tad because I come from the same cloth as you. So this morning I want us to look and I want us to think about obedience to the Lord. Faithfulness is a maybe even a better word for us to think about. Faithfulness and obedience to the Lord in our lives. If you've been born again, even though there may be highs and lows of our spiritual life, we cannot be people who are apathetic or people who don't really care about being faithful to the Lord. It cannot be so. Rather, we're going to see how Jesus' divine nature gives us the desire to be faithful and to be obedient to him out of joy. By way of context, if we think about John's chapters 9 and 10, they fit very closely together. Uh, I'm going to go through this very quickly, so don't think, don't check out on me. Jesus healed a man in John chapter 9 who had been born blind. So for many years, this man had been born blind, and Jesus healed him. When he did, the Jewish religious leaders hated him for this task that he performed. For this miracle that he had done, these people who were supposed to be those who were followers of the Lord, uh, who were the leaders and teachers of the law, hated Jesus for this task. The reason is because they knew that man could not make a blind man see. And the issue was that they were looking and hearing of this man that had been that had that had healed another man from being able to from being blind to be able to see and they're thinking this can't be him. Jesus can't do that. What we see though is that Jesus is the one who has done that in chapter 9. And now Jesus, whenever we get to chapter 10, Jesus is responding to, to those Jewish religious leaders. He is responding to their, what, they have, what they're thinking and what they're saying about him. And I want us to understand that he is responding to these people, to these Jewish religious leaders, who do not want to believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. Jesus has stated that he alone is the good shepherd. We just read that. And that his sheep hear his voice, indicating that his people will respond and they will follow his word. So here's the question. What makes Jesus different from the religious leaders of the Jews of his day? That's what he's addressing in chapter 10. He is telling us what false prophets, false shepherds looked like and he's telling us what the true one good shepherd looks like he's showing us a comparison between the false teachers of his day and himself the true shepherd the good shepherd so what is the difference there are two primary things in chapter 10 that are different about jesus and these other religious leaders 
the other shepherds had tried to go into the sheepfold a different way. They, they didn't want to go in by the way of the true Messiah, which ended up was Jesus. They wanted to enter into the sheepfold by the way of the law. They also were looking for a different Messiah, a different kind of Messiah, somebody that would look very different than Jesus looked and taught and sounded and said. The other thing is what we're going to focus on this morning is that the Jewish religious leaders left the sheep to be devoured by the wolves. Jesus didn't do that. What did Jesus do instead of leaving them to be devoured by the wolves? The most distinguishing difference about Jesus comes here. And this is what we're going to look at this morning, is that when we look at obedience, at the obedience of Jesus to the Father's plan and His purposes, we're going to see, beginning in verse number 17, that Jesus would not flee when difficulty came, rather He would lay down His life for His sheep. That's different than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That's different. Rather than fleeing, Jesus laid down his own life for them. So this morning, first, first of all, if you're taking notes, I hope some of you are, first point is obedience reveals your true love. I can hear some parents saying obey already, maybe some grandparents. <clears throat> Probably not grandparents, y'all. Now I know how that is. I've got some of them. Obedience reveals your true love. In verse 17, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me. For this reason the Father loves me. Now some of you may already be thinking, well, doesn't the Father always love Jesus? Hasn't he always loved Jesus? Absolutely. But he loves Jesus... Because he is his son. He is the second person of the Trinity. They cannot be separated. And yet, not only that, what we're going to see in our text this morning is that the Father also loves him because Jesus was absolutely obedient to him. 100% of the time. Every time. All the time. The Father had a plan to save sinners, and Jesus was a part of that, and he was obedient all the way to the point of giving up his own life to follow the Father's plan. What an obedient son to follow that plan out. That's the extent that we see here that Jesus would take. Let's go on and see what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus did not do like the religious leaders of his day. Jesus willingly, I want us to make sure we understand this, Jesus willingly, cognitively, and absolutely gave up his own life. People did not take it from him. He gave up his own life. 
The greatest act of obedience by Jesus was his willingness to go to the cross on behalf of sinners. To lay down his life for his sheep, for their sins. And I want us to put it into perspective this morning, for your sin. Amen. (laughs) For your sin. Christ was in perfect harmony with the Father. Absolute, wonderful, glorious uh, situation in glory. And then what do we read? Not In another text in the Word. Then He took on flesh, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was in the most glorious situation, the one in which we aim to be one day, we hope to be as believers, and we look forward to because of the promises we have, and yet Jesus was there and he left it to come and die on our behalf. Jesus was willing to bear the shame of Golgotha, the isolation and rejection of death, the very wrath of Almighty God, and he did all of that for our sake, for us, for us. He did, he did that to save sinners in need of a Savior. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, but you have found it possibly very difficult lately to fight off sin. Some of you may not want to say that out loud, but as sinners, brothers and sisters, we do. Every day of our lives have to fight off the flesh. We have to fight off sin that so easily entangles us. Maybe you have doubted your Savior's love for you in that you're not able to fight off sin as you should because it really does flow from there. We must not forget the love that Jesus has had for us, or we will not be able to fight off sin and temptation in our lives. Listen to what John Calvin said here, our brother. He said, Our salvation is dearer to Jesus than his own life. Hear me. Our salvation is dearer to Jesus than his own life. Life. I want to go a little further. Some of you say, well, I'm saved. Praise God. I want you to also think and realize that if God has started a good work in us, then he will complete it, right? Our sanctification is more important to Jesus than his life. He died not only to save us, but to ultimately save us when we're completely rid of the sin in which our flesh that we have here on earth. One day, it'll, it'll be a glorious moment. It'll be a glorious time. We look backward to what Jesus has done, and we look forward to the day whenever it's completely consummated. He cares about saving us from the sin that we our penalty of sin, but he also cares about our sanctification, our holiness, our faithfulness to him in our lives. Since Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago, 
we often feel as though it was an impersonal act associated with us. Like, yes, he did it, and then I came later, and then, yeah, I can be saved now. No, I I want you to understand that if Jesus died for your sins, then he went to the cross for your sins. It's not impersonal. It's extremely personal. It was personal for Jesus on the cross. It was personal for him then, and it is, should be personal for us now. We should realize that he did that knowing that he was dying for you as his follower, and as someone who trusts in him. He died in our place. That is a love that will help us to fight off sin. That is a love that we can trust and know and dwell and meditate on that we can fight off sin in our lives, the temptations that come our way. If Jesus is the one who's accomplished obedience to the Father, then does it matter if we're obedient or not? If he's already paid for our sins, then what does it matter? That's a logical question, right? Not really. Can we fight off sin? Yes, we can fight off sin. How are we to live faithfully to the Lord? I want to point us to a different passage. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. But I believe that Paul gives us a a glimpse and, and explains into the reality of how we can live for the Lord. And we find that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... Listen to what he says, to present your bodies. Now, he's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians who have already been saved. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see the difference between a, a dead sacrifice and now what Paul is talking about, a living sacrifice? The dead sacrifice was Jesus on our behalf. We are now to be the living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. We are to live that which we have already been declared. We are to live worthy of the walk, right, of that which we have already been saved from and to. A holy life, an acceptable life to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen to what he says. He says, do not be conformed to this world. (laughs) Man, It's easy, hopefully, to distinguish Christians from the world today. Sometimes it is not. But it should be. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, our minds and our hearts, our souls, our spirits, those things, they are are changed and transformed by the Word of God. And as we are, we are able to live faithfully, not perfect, faithfully to the Lord. Our obedience should be an overflow of love from the grace and mercy shown to us that Jesus has laid down his life for us. It should be a response, not trying to seek after salvation. We are to do that by being living sacrifices to God and living for Him in glorious and joyful obedience. 
We obey out of gratitude, not out of a need for acceptance, right? So what does your obedience look like in your life? What does our obedience look like? Faithful? Slack? Non-existent? What does our obedience tell us? I I can easily come here and preach this today. Why? Because I don't know any of you. I don't know who you talked to on the phone this week. I don't know who you went to go see this week. I don't know who you sat down in the chair with and had a conversation with this week. I don't know if you prayed this week. I don't know if you opened your Bible this week. You do. You know. I know what my own life. I know what my own life looks like, and you know what yours looks like, because we know the deep, dark secrets of our own soul. We know when it's dirty and ugly. We know whenever it's faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. Children, are you obedient to your parents? It's not perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but are you obedient to your parents? You're called to that as children. God has given you parents to love you and care for you. You are called to be obedient. If you truly love your parents, then you'll obey them. If you're running hard, headlong, as fast as you can, away from your parents' guidance and direction, then I can absolutely tell you it will lead to destruction. Be faithful and, and obey your parents for they love you. If your heart is willing, is it has, if you have a heart that is, uh, has willing obedience, you desire to be obedient to your parents, praise God for that. For that is the grace of the Lord that He has called you and given you the ability and desire to be obedient to them. Wives, This is not an easy subject in our day. But are you obedient to your husbands? A different word is submissive to your husbands. I can preach this today because I I am a husband. Uh, I am married. And my wife is not here. It's a little easier, right? Do you obey your husbands? Now, nothing in sin, obviously, things that... Anything in the Bible that would turn us away and tell us that that would not be right, then absolutely. But for the most part, do you have a heart that desires to be submissive and obedient to your husband? Your obedience to your husband is directly proportional to your love for him and your love for the Lord. I am convinced that this is a very big problem in our society and even in our churches today. If wives and children both are not seeking to be submissive to the head of the household, I can tell you the household will not be what it should be. Therefore, it will affect the church. It will affect our society. We see that today. The whole societal family relationship is breaking down. We don't want that in the church. We want 
faithfulness to what the Lord, how He has set it up to be. And He has given us a great plan and design for that. Husbands, we're not getting out of here without this, so don't leave. Do you obey the Lord? Do you obey the Lord? Your obedience to the Lord is directly reflected in how you love your children and how you love your wife. Your willing obedience to the Lord is of paramount importance for the family. For the entire family will be affected, good or bad, as to how we seek to be obedient to our Lord and Savior. Now, it's not going to be perfect. We all know that, but that is not an excuse. Our obedience, however, it is never going to be what we want it to be. There will always be a sense of not measuring up, and that is okay. That is life in the already but not yet. Already saved, but being sanctified. Rather, since we have been loved so much, all of us, children, wives, husbands, we should not be able to do anything but help to be obedient to the Lord and to His will and what He has called us to in Scripture. Our obedience can now be one of joy. Why? Because of what the Lord Jesus did obediently to His Father and for His Father on our behalf, giving Himself up to save our souls. But Jesus' purpose was not only to lay down his life. There was another part to that. Let's look at what he says in verse 17. He says, it was also to take it up again. Look at what he says. He says, I lay down my life so that, or that I may take it up again. Purpose statement. Jesus had a great purpose in going to the cross. He, he, he was not just going to the cross for the cross's sake, not only to die. Jesus had a purpose, and his purpose was that he would go to die and he would also be raised from the dead. That he would come back to life. He would be brought back to life. And we're going to talk about that more in just a second. Isn't it glorious that he knew there was something to the other side of the shame of Golgotha? It was the resurrection and being exalted by the Father and seated at the right hand of Him. Let's turn from focusing on Jesus' obedience to Jesus' divine nature. Second point is the hope of Jesus' sheep, His people, is found in the divine nature of Jesus. It is found in the divine nature of Jesus. Look with me in verse number 18. He, Jesus continues and he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. When we think about Jesus' death, we might think about those people who had a literal hand in putting him to death. Isn't that normally what we think about? We think about, possibly, we, we think about Judas... We think about the soldiers, the band of soldiers. We think about the officers. We think about uh, those of uh, the, the chief priests, the Pharisees. We think about those that arrested Jesus. We think about Pilate, Antipas. 
we think of these people who had a hand in putting Jesus to death. We think about the humans. The the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus, the unjust trial of Jesus, the illegitimate just just judgment of Jesus to be crucified. We have may have lots of different emotions. Uh, one of them is probably a disgust for those people who put Jesus to death. We may even have some pity on some of those people that put Jesus to death because we know that God's judgment will be upon them if they do, did not come to salvation. But even though mankind had a role to play in Jesus' death, Jesus had something else to say about that here in verse number 18. He says, No one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. What does this mean? I thought that the wicked people uh, that killed... I thought it was wicked people who killed Jesus... Well, in one sense, that is true. It is true that wicked mankind put Jesus to death. But ultimately, Jesus gave up his own life. Do you know what Peter... Peter knew this, and he said in, in his sermon at Pentecost, he said this, This Jesus, listen to what he said, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified... You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, it was sinful humanity who put Jesus to death, but it was absolutely a part of God's foreknowledge and also His plan to put Jesus to death. And Jesus knew it. If you will remember the last moments while Jesus was hanging on the cross, we read this. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he, listen to what, and G, talking about Jesus, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Jesus goes on to say in verse number 18, he says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The word authority is referring to having the ability to do it along with the authority to do it. So some people have the ability to do things, but they don't have the authority to make it go come to pass. Jesus is saying that he actually had the full authority to take his own life, to let this Life be part of going to death. It's very important for us to understand that we do not have this same right. We don't have the right to lay down our lives like Jesus did. Now, we can lay down our lives as living sacrifices. We're called to do that but not as a sacrifice that brings salvation to us or to anyone else. We cannot lay down our lives on behalf of us or anyone. Cannot be. But Jesus is God. He is different. He is God. 
And he is following the Father's plan, which is perfect. And that led him to lay down his own life for his people. That's not the most staggering claim that Jesus makes. This next one is one that has rocked my world, so to speak. Jesus goes on to say here in verse number 18, And I have authority to take it up again. Jesus here is referring to his own resurrection from the dead. And what is he saying? Well, we know that there's been many people raised from the dead before Jesus was. Lazarus is one that comes to mind for sure. But the difference is nobody else has raised themselves from the dead. Jesus did. He had the authority to raise himself from the grave. Look at what he says. Or he says, and I have authority to take it up again. You see, Jesus reveals here his divine nature, that he is absolutely always has been and always will be God. Now, some of you may be saying, I understand. Well, what I want us to see, though, is that his divine nature is that which gives us the ability to know that we are saved, that he is sanctifying us, and that we can live faithfully for him in obedience even today. Jesus is literally saying here that even though his body will be dead, that he will raise himself from the grave. That is a Messiah, the only person that we can get excited about today. It's the one who can raise himself from the dead. It wasn't a new prophetic word from Jesus. This wasn't new. Jesus has said it before. Where did he say it? Earlier in chapter 2, verse number 19. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it again. I. I will raise this temple up. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I know there's passages in the Bible that talk about God raising Jesus from the dead. You're right. You're absolutely right. Acts 2, uh, Peter again at Pentecost says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And later in this same sermon, Peter says, this Jesus, God raised up. So, we may wonder, who was it? Was it God or was it Jesus? Yes. Yes. Jesus is making the point in our text right here that he has the authority and the ability to lay down his own life and to raise it up one day. Why? Because he is God. He is the Holy One. This is so important. Jesus died and he raised himself from the dead. How could he do it? His divine nature. Never died. His body died. Jesus died. But his divine nature lived on and he raised himself from the grave. Jesus 
gives a very staggering statement here at the end of verse number 18 that the Jews despised. He says, this charge I have received from my father. You see, this is Jesus' way of pointing to the entire process of him laying down his life and taking it back up again and saying, it was the father's will that I do so. It was the Father's will. The one who you, religious leaders of the Jews, it is you claim that you worship Him, the Father. Well, He's the one who gave me charge to do this. When we think of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want us to think of a Jesus who was passive. He was not passive in death and resurrection. He was not being uh, having these things committed to him only. No. He was, he was the one who was active in all of this. He's the one who holds all things together. And he is the one who was active in all of this process of death and resurrection. I don't want you wondering if you were placing your faith in a once lifeless Jesus. You're not. His body was lifeless, but Jesus wasn't dead. <laughs> his, 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 his human nature was dead, but his, his nature as God was not dead. You were never placing your faith in a dead person. You were placing your faith in the Messiah who died on your behalf. If he raised your soul from the dead, he can also raise your body one day. Look forward. We look forward to that day. We all look forward to the day in which we're raised from the dead. But we have to remember that if he's done one, he will do the other. We look forward to that. The divine nature of Jesus, as well as the human nature of Jesus, is where our true hope is found. We cannot have a fully only human Jesus without the divine nature and have hope in that. He is 100% God and 100% man. His desire for us is good. He is a good shepherd to us. He loves his sheep deeply so much that he would lay down his life and he would raise it up again on our behalf. But we all have a response to Jesus' statements. These statements right here... There are, all of you have some type of different response in your heart and in your mind about these statements. The Jews did too. So we're going to look at what the response is here in verse number 19. So your response to the claims of Jesus. That's my third point. Your response to the claims of Jesus. Verse 19 says this. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Imagine that, right? What words in John, what words are John talking about here? Well, they refer all the way back to Jesus' response to the Jews after he healed the man who was born blind. It all started there uh, in, in this passage. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus revealed that these Jews were spiritually blind. They couldn't even see what they needed to see. In the, in the Messiah that was before them. Jesus revealed that these Jews uh, were spiritually blind, but then look in verse number, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, Jesus revealed that he is the true shepherd, that these other people, these other religious leaders were not the true shepherd, they were not good shepherds, but Jesus is. 
7 to 16, he's the true door. He's the way in which people should enter into the family of God. The one who will lay down his life for his sheep. Now, he has claimed that he will lay down his life and he will take it up again, not to mention that this was all the plan of the Father from the beginning. And listen, Jesus' claims here is that all of this was part of the Father's plan and the Jews despised it. The Jewish religious leaders did not want to hear that this Jesus was following the Father's commands as a Messiah. They wanted somebody who looked different than Jesus. They wanted somebody who sounded different from Jesus. They wanted somebody that affirmed what they were doing even though it was wicked. That's not what he did. (laughs) He came in truth. And in true love. When the people heard Jesus' claims, the same thing happened that happens today. There was a division among them over these words. Some believed Jesus. Some didn't believe Jesus. Look at verse number 20. We read where this group's response, this is the first group's response. They say, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Now, I hope this is not your response today. I hope that it's not anywhere even close to your response, the response of your heart today. Verse number 20. Thinking that this is, this is a crazy man. This is a man who, who, who thinks he's God, who, who's claiming to be, have messianic tendencies about him and the ability to, to, to make a man who was blind be able to see again. I hope that this is not your response in your heart today. It's not the first time that Jesus was accused of having a demon or being crazy. Jesus' claims would make him more than human. He was different. It would make him divine. His claims set them off. For no one had the ability to raise himself from the dead, but they knew that this was what Jesus had just claimed. Therefore, they tried to disregard Jesus by saying that he had a demon and that he was crazy. So they suggested here at the end of verse 20, they say, uh, why listen to him? He's crazy. Don't listen to him. I hope these things are not what your heart is thinking this morning. I will tell you, there are people who do think these things. Don't think it's unusual. Our society and our world at large will say that Jesus was crazy. Don't listen to him. There was another group that remembered the young man in chapter 9 that Jesus had come across as he exited the temple. This group said in verse 21, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. So they're correcting the other group. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Hmm. These Jews knew from Psalm 146, verse number 8, the Lord sets the prisoners free. Listen to this. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Man doesn't do that. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And these Jews, these Jews remembered the Scriptures. 
and that it was Jesus who was able to open the eyes of the blind. And who must he be but the Lord? The Lord. Even though these claims by Jesus are staggering, they recognize that he must be of God because he was able to heal a blind man. When the Jews wanted that young man to say that Jesus was a sinner, that young man testified to the Jews. If you have your Bible open to chapter 9, verse number 25, it's great to see this passage. This is what this young man responded who had been, who had been healed, who now was able to see. He said this. Whether he, they, asked, they asked this young man, tell us that Jesus is a sinner. And he says this. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind... Now I see. That's all he knew. He had been blind his whole life, and now he can see color. He can see his family. He can see the one who saved him. <laughs> May him be able to see. We know that Jesus can heal the blind, but I want to be very clear that we also know that Jesus is not a sinner also. He is not a sinner. Yet, he died for He died for sinners. Sinners just like us. If we turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus for salvation, we have been saved by this Jesus. Jesus is the way of salvation, and he is the way of our sanctification. So what is your, your response today? to these claims that Jesus made about himself? Is it one of obedience out of gratitude for Jesus' work on your behalf? Or is it one of disgust or unbelief? Are you glad for Jesus' divine nature with the authority to lay down his own life and to raise it back up on our behalf? Or are you a person who is turned off by Jesus' claims of divinity, that he is the Messiah? the only one who can save you. For those who respond positively to Jesus' claims, even though Jesus gave up his life for his sheep, now he lives. Now he lives. And his people will be raised to newness of life with him in the end. Let's pray. Father, you are very good. And you have been very good to us. First and foremost, Lord, for saving our souls. For bringing us to a knowledge of salvation and a way to be saved through Jesus. Thank you. Having a body of believers just like this is a grace by you and you alone. Lord, never let a group of believers, true believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ, never let them be brought low to think that they are unimportant or they do not matter. Lord, every Christian feels that way at times.
But Lord, I pray that we must stay away from that notion for you have brought us into existence as humans. You have brought us together through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know our worth as redeemed, redeemed sinners. Lord, that you have brought us into a fellowship and that you show us love and you care for us all the way throughout our lives. Father, I pray today that churches all around the world, this one and every other one, Lord, that believers will be encouraged that you are still with us and that you still care for us, that you are a good shepherd and you will not leave your sheep. Father, we, I pray and I thank you for this, this body today. I thank you for Harrison Hills. I pray, Lord, that you will bless this ministry and their work, that you will show your love and mercy to them, that you will heal up places that need bandaging. And, Lord God, that you will encourage them to see the need out in their community. It's people that need to be saved, sheep who need to be reached, and also, Lord, that they will build one another up in the body as we are sanctified through you and your spirit. Father, you've been good to us, and we praise you and thank you today. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.